Good morning. <clears throat> so today's reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. It's on page 877 on your Black Bibles. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing, you still lack, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. Hi, so my name is Ryan Phelps. I serve here as lead pastor. It's good to be with you. Before we get to it today in this amazing passage, let's pray together. God, we come before you, and I pray that we have humble hearts. I pray that I have a humble heart as we approach your holy word. This is your supernatural revelation. Come to your people for our joy, that we may walk in line with your goodness, with your will, with your character. God, I know this is difficult. We talked about it last week. It's difficult to talk about money. And we're going to try to center in today on why that is. But I pray for great joy today. I pray that we do not have anxious hearts, that we don't clench up as we hear this, that we don't get defensive, but that we would hear you speaking to us, that we would know your love for us, wanting us to get a handle on our money, our possessions, our great resources. You have provided to us so much, O oh Lord. Now would we become good stewards in your name for your glory for the good of all people. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. What effect does money have on you? What effect does our possessions, our money, have on us? Does having it or not having it change who we are fundamentally? Interestingly, a growing body of evidence suggests that it actually does change us. It does affect us. Where most people might not think that it does, just getting near it, just thinking that you might have more than you do, changes us pretty dramatically. Boston Globe ran an article a few years ago. They tackled the subject, and this is what they reported. 
They said that studies are showing that wealth can actually change how we think and behave and not always for the better. Rich people have a harder time connecting with others, showing less empathy to the extent of dehumanizing those who are different from them. They are less charitable and generous. They are less likely to help someone in trouble. And they are more likely to defend an unfair status quo. If you think you'd behave differently in their place, meanwhile, you're probably wrong. These are not just inherited traits, but developed ones. Money, in other words, changes who you are. That is amazing to me. Now, what's really fascinating to me is what they did these studies. They did not just go and find rich people and ask them questions, put them through tests. They actually used every sort of person from every sort of tax bracket. And this was important because they wanted to see what the effect of money was on, how it, the effect it had on every person, on any person. So in order to gauge the effect of money on a person, they would put people in situations where they simply believed they had more resources. So one of the tests was a Monopoly test. You all know what Monopoly is, the game of Monopoly. They would put people in a room, and they would have them play the game Monopoly. Sounds pretty fun. But they would take one person, and they would give them double the money, the little paper money. They got, they got twice as much, and they got to take two turns every time they went around. They got to roll the dice twice. Well, of course, the person with more money won every time. What was interesting is how they would change, how they would change when they had more resources, just in a funny little game with paper money that didn't mean anything. They would get a little meaner, a little colder. They almost always assumed that their money, that their winning was a direct result of their good decision-making. On the one hand, yes, money changes you. But on the other hand, it changes you very very quickly. You just need to think that you have more and you are affected. One researcher said this, you don't actually need to own that money to be endowed or to be endowed with that money and yet it has these effects on you. It speaks to the power that these effects could have on people in their daily decisions. Money just has to get close to us and we begin to change. It's an amazing thing. You know that we live in the wealthiest country the world has ever seen. It's been said that a middle-class person today lives at the same level a king would have lived at 200, maybe even 100 years ago. And so it's here. We live it. Either we have a lot, or we live with those who have it. We see it every day. And I think that it influences us. I don't think we need studies, though, to show us that. I think that we know that money has a powerful effect on us. We know it. We feel it. I think that we need to get a hold of it. As Christians, we must come to terms with it. If you are not a Christian, then you may need in your own life to come to terms with money. And maybe we need to see how the Bible approaches this. And especially how Jesus approaches it. Remember what we said last week. Jesus talked about money more than anything else, more than heaven and hell combined. This was on his heart for us because he knew how much money affected our hearts. So let's just turn our eyes to him today. 
Let's open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to what he has to say in this amazing passage. So three points to help us along. One, money feels like a problem. Two, money is a problem. And three, money does not have to be a problem. One, money feels like a problem. Luke 18.18, listen to it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you've probably heard this story before. You've probably heard it because it's actually relayed in, in many of the Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and here, and, and, and also in Mark. And we know quite a bit about this man. It's called the story of the rich young ruler, but it's not actually that, it's not, it doesn't have that title. It's just titled that because we know about him. We know about his life. We know that he was in a position of power. He was a ruler. He was probably part of the Sanhedrin, the very, very strict Jewish sect of people. The most important thing, though, is his wealth, right? That's what we need to focus on, the rich, young ruler. Jesus is going to talk about his money. He is wealthy, very wealthy. But if you didn't notice it when George was reading it, he is not just wealthy in one ways, but in two ways. Listen closely. He is both materially wealthy and morally wealthy. We know that he is materially wealthy, that he has a lot of resources. Verse 23 says that he is very rich. He was extremely rich. But then Jesus asks him a question about the Ten Commandments, right? He asks him how well he followed the law of God. And he says very confidently, all of these I have kept from my youth. This man has it all. He is materially and morally wealthy. We can say it simpler. He came to Jesus both rich and good. Now, I think it's interesting that very often we take those two things, wealth, our money, and our goodness, and we bring them together. We connect them. One leads to the other and vice versa. Being rich and being good is often the same thing in our minds, in our hearts. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, when we are rich, we feel like we are good people. On the one hand, when we are rich and we have resources, to the degree that we have resources, we feel like we are good people. Our ability to buy things, the size of our savings account, the amount of possessions we have, it becomes the display of our goodness. I am like that. When I get a new watch or something, I'm not wearing one, but when I get a new watch, I want people to see it. Our possessions become a part of who we are. We put it out there and we say, listen, we are good people. Often, though, it comes out in different ways. Sometimes it makes us feel superior, right? The more we have, the more we are able to look down on others. But on the other side, if you do not have a lot, you can feel very inferior. You feel as though you are not as good as that other person who has more than you do. The person who has the nicer car or the nicer home. We are rich or not, it affects how we see our goodness, our our morality. This man's wealth, for sure, made him feel like a good person. He came with his head high. Now, here's the other side of it. When we are moral, we feel like we deserve to be rich. 
When we do good things, we feel like we are owed a good lifestyle. We think that if we are good enough, we should be provided for good enough. We assume that our morality will result in a good, high-paying job, a nice house, the latest tech gadgets. Often this comes out in comparison to other people, especially when we see people who have more than we do. We can scoff at them, and we don't just decry their wealth. We go, well, they're not good people. They're not good people. Or we just simply look up to God and we say, God, look at me. I am doing all that I can. I am a good person. Why are you not blessing me? Or on the flip side, God, I must have done something to deserve all of this. The bottom line is that we make money into something more, more than it is. More than just the bread that we buy at the store, the clothing we buy to put on our backs, or the homes that we buy to live in. Money stands in for so much in our lives. And that is how the rich young ruler has come to him. He has come to him with great moral and material wealth. On the surface, he has it all. He has the life that we would probably say that we want. He is so blessed, we might say. Now, here's the thing. Would he say that? Would he say that? Does he truly have it all? The fact that he's coming to Jesus means that there is something askew in his life. Despite his great wealth, he does not feel entirely wealthy. He knows that there is at least something small that he is missing, and he wants to make sure that he gets it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen, this man had heard his whole life that he was good enough. That he was good enough for salvation. When everything came to the end, when all was consummated at the end of time, he would be the first walking through that door because he followed the law. And this was displayed in his material wealth. His whole life, the rabbis would have said, it's okay, you're fine. But something now is driving him to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He lacked something. He could not put his finger on it, but he knew just enough to seek out Christ. This very rich man was driven to seek out a very poor one. Money, despite its allure, does not solve all of our problems. It does not make us feel whole. It does not give us the identity we want, no matter how much we get, no matter what lifestyle we reach. It does not actually make us happy. It's almost a truism. I almost don't even have to say it. Now, it makes sense why money would be so connected to our hearts. Money is literally tied to our well-being, right? We need money to live. We need money to buy bread and milk and clothing and a home. The problem is that we do not stop there. The more we get, the more that we think we need. Money goes from something good, something that we need to survive, but it overflows into something else, to something that we need to have purpose. This is displayed all throughout this country, all throughout the world. When researchers ask how much more money a person needs to be happy, what do they say? 10%. No matter how much they're making, how much do you need, how much more do you need, To feel right, to feel good. 10%, that's it. 10 10 more percent. And then they reach that, and what do they say? Well, 10 more percent now. 
Here's what one person said. By its very nature, greed is an endless and never is an endless and never assuaged. And by being a form of the impulse to live, it ceases only with death. Ouch, that hurts. Money becomes, greed becomes an impulse to live. At the end of his life, King Solomon said of wealth, most, he was probably the wealthiest man to ever live. He said that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, I don't want to throw money under the bus too much. Money, on the one hand, is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. And money, honestly, in a vacuum, it, it's neutral. It doesn't mean anything. It's pieces of paper. But friends, we are far from living in a vacuum. And so we must be honest that money has a dramatic effect on our hearts. We must be honest about this. Money makes us anxious. It can make us question our identity and self-worth. Money can make us look down on others. Money can end marriages. Money has even destroyed churches. I always thought it was weird that Puff Daddy, of all people, would sing the song, Mo Money, More Problems, right? Maybe that's not that weird. We are usually able to see what is eating us. We just have a hard time making it stop. Marcus Pearson was the guy who invented and eventually sold the Minecraft video game. And he literally became a billionaire overnight. But with wealth he found, he did not, it did not satisfy him like he thought it would. And so he tweeted out pretty recently this. He said, The problem with getting everything is that you run out of reasons to keep trying. And human ad- interactions become impossible due to imbalance. And he said this, Hanging out in Ibiza, I don't know, it's a place, I guess, some awesome place. Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people able to do whatever I want. And I've never felt more isolated. We are not billionaires, that's obvious. But we have something in common with him. Money feels like a problem. And the reason for that is that money is a problem. That's the second point. Money is a problem. So this rich guy is coming, looking for something. He can't put his finger on it, but he, he knows that this guy, Jesus, has been doing miracles. A lot of people are following him. Maybe he can help him. Help me. I want to get an eternal life. And Jesus says, okay. Okay, let's test you. Let's measure you up. Let's check you out. Luke eighteen twenty. You know the commandments, Jesus says. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man replied, all these I have kept from my youth. Now when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now we as Christians, we hear that and what do we think immediately? Oh no, oh no. Is Jesus telling me to do that too? Is he telling me to give up all my wealth and sell it to the, or give all my possessions up, all my money, sell everything and give it to the poor? Now, before we apply it to our lives, we have to be careful. Before we start thinking about ourselves, we have to see the text, see the situation, and know that Jesus is talking to a human being. He is face to face. 
His eyes are on this man. He has taken his time to stop, listen, and answer him directly. And Jesus is the Lord of lords. And he knows what's coming. He knows this man's soul, his history, his past, his future. He knows exactly what he needs. And here's the most important part. As Jesus looks at him, he loves him. He loves him. Now that's not recorded here. But in the Gospel of Mark, when he recounts this story, that's what he says. He says that as the man came up to him, as he was speaking to him, Jesus loved him. Now is that something that Jesus told him later? Like, yeah, I loved him when I was doing that. I don't think so. I think Mark saw it on his face. He saw the love in his eyes, in his words. He knew that he loved this man. And it was out of love that Jesus said this radical thing to him. Sell everything that you have. You, the rich young ruler, sell it all. It's out of love, and so I think that we can say confidently that Jesus is not telling him to give up his life. He is telling him to gain it. Now how? How is this a loving thing to to tell someone to give up all that they have? How will it save him? In the end, Jesus cares about our hearts, right? Jesus cares about what is going on inside of us. What matters in following him is not just doing the right things externally. It's not having the right wealth morally or materially. It is who you are on the inside. In other words, it does not matter what you have, but who you are. It does not matter if you have $80 billion or $80. All that matters in the end is your heart. I don't know if you noticed when George read it, verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say to him? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not just being a jerk. He's not being a jerk at all. He is setting this guy up. This man has a totally different idea of what goodness is. It is an external goodness, material, moral wealth. No way, Jesus says. Goodness must come from your heart. And Jesus exposes this man's radical need to be good with just one simple command. Verse 20 again, You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man said back, All of these I have kept from my youth. Now at that point, the man's feeling really good. I've done it all. I passed the test. And then Jesus lays the hammer down. When he heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, is that a law? Take all your stuff, sell it. Go to your bank accounts, empty it, and give it away. Where did you find that in the Bible? Where is that law listed in the Bible? The Bible talks a lot about giving, about tithing, about first fruits. Does it ever say this? I don't think so. So is Jesus just adding to the law here? Is he doing his own thing? No. Now, friends, this is where the text hinges. This is where everything comes together. How you understand Jesus' command here to this young man will determine how you understand and relate to money. The man says to Jesus, 
I have kept all the laws you mention. And Jesus says essentially back to him, what about the first one? What about the first one? Have you kept the most important law? And what is that law? You shall have no other gods before me. Now Jesus does not say those words exactly, but he is applying it. He is applying it out of love so specifically for this man. Sell all that you have and it hits this man right in the heart. And we know it hits him in the heart because of his reaction. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. The Greek is even stronger. It says he was grieved, utterly devastated because he had been asked the one question. Will you follow God or your money? Will you give your whole life to Jesus or your wealth? Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Money for this man was his God. It was his identity. His money and possessions had become his very purpose in life. His money and possessions were keeping him at bay from the Lord. His money and possessions were strangling his heart. That is why Jesus speaks to him. Just to him. But as he is there, now we must see Jesus turn to us. We must see him turn his eyes to us and his loving gaze and apply it to ourselves. What does Jesus want from us? What is he saying to us? Now understand first that Jesus is not saying that every person must give up his or her wealth to trust God. We actually know this is the case. There was another time where a man gave his life to God and just gave up half of his wealth. Zacchaeus, remember that? The wee little man we sang in Sunday school. He said, Jesus, I want to follow you. He was a terrible tax collector, but he wanted to turn his life around. Jesus, I want to follow you. And so I'm going to do so by giving up half of my income, all of my earnings, all my possessions, and I'm going to sell them to the poor. And what did Jesus say? That's not good enough. No, he said, it's okay. That's great. He accepted it. So what is the difference? Why did it only cost him half of his wealth, but it cost this, would cost this rich man everything? The answer is that Jesus comes to you and he reveals exactly what you need to give up to follow him. He comes to you and tells you what God you have given yourself over to. He reveals to you exactly what is killing you. For Zacchaeus, it was half of his wealth. For the rich young ruler, it was everything. His money had become had taken a stranglehold on his heart and Jesus loved him and knew that only full extraction would work. Friends, this is always how Jesus works. He comes into your life like an explosion. His radical radical love comes into you and changes you from the inside out. That is what is required to win you, to save you, to bring you life, to bring you purpose. He's looking at us now. He is looking at us with love. He knows what ails us. He knows what has a stranglehold on our hearts. He knows exactly what is keeping us from following him wholly, completely. He knows what is killing us. 
Now we must say that for many of us, this is money. We live again in the wealthiest country the world has ever known and we struggle to get this balance right. Money makes us fear and worry and hoard and envy and fail to be generous. And so in other words, at some level, we hold back our money from the Lord. We keep this area of our life from Him. Friends, He is asking something of us. Brothers and sisters, he is speaking to us all. Does this have a stranglehold on your heart? To what degree? Andy Stanley, the pastor, puts it this way. In every person's life, God plants the question, do you trust me? To trust him financially means we experience peace and contentment while we enjoy the thrill of participating in his financial mission for the world. So by keeping God at bay from our finances, we are keeping God at bay. But when we let him in, when we let him into our bank accounts, when we let him see our register, when we let him have what he's going to do with our possessions, then something radical happens. We find joy in him. We trust him. Money could be a problem because it is a problem. Third, money does not have to be a problem. It does not have to be a problem. Now, even Jesus knows this is a hard teaching. Even he knows it. He doesn't usually give qualifiers, but he even says, yeah, this is difficult. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. So the camel was the biggest animal that they had in the Middle East back then. The needle was the smallest, the smallest little circle. This teaching is hard. And so how do we respond? How do we make sure that our money has not overtaken our hearts? And if it has, how do we get them released? How do we become unenslaved to our money? How do we make sure we are following Christ? So let's get practical. First, we must admit that it's going to be at least something of a problem for you. And the reasons for that, the reason for that is because we live here in America. It is just an unforeseen consequence. Even if you do not have the most, you have a lot compared to some people in the world. And even if you do not have the most, you are constantly seeing those who do. And this is often where our anxieties and frustrations, our fears come from. We just see what others have and we want it desperately. We think that we need it when they have it. I was reading a stark reminder of this when I was reading this week about a man who escaped from a North Korean prison. I don't need to say much more than that. It was a horrible place. But he escaped, escaped the country, and he made his way into North Korea. And while he was happy to be free, now that he lived in South Korea, one of the world's richest countries, he noticed a different kind of slavery had taken over the people there. A slavery to money and possessions. This is what he said. In South Korea, you have to suffer when you don't have enough money. It's exhausting. It's all about money. At the very least, we must admit that we have a problem. We are going to have a problem with this. We feel it. We know it is there. But we need to admit something beyond this. Not just that we have the problem, but that we cannot deal with on our own. Please hear that. 
On our own, we cannot fix this. That is what got us into the problem in the first place. So we must confess of and repent of our own greed. We must learn to rely on Him. We must learn to entrust Him with our resources. And let's just ask how. Here's the third thing. How do you do it? Jesus said it. Luke 18, 26. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he, Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. This is not just another parable. This is not just another teaching or proverb. This is an opportunity, friends, to see, to look, and behold. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Friends, the impossible is staring us right in the face, and he is here right there, staring at us from this text, the rich young ruler. Hear that again, the rich young ruler, not that one, the other one. He's just over 30 years old. He is the ruler of the people of God. And he is rich beyond anything that we can imagine. The impossible come down to earth in flesh for us. And he is speaking to us now. And he says, though you could not do it, you could not give up everything for me, I gave up everything for you. Though you could not lay your idols down for me, I gave up my blood for you. And not some of it, not 10 or 20 or 30 or 75%, all of it. My life poured out for yours. There was no stranglehold on my heart, he says. But I let my heart die so that you might live. And friends, when we begin to see him like this, when we see the Son of God giving up everything for us, we can finally begin to realize it is not our money and possessions that we need, but it is him. It is Jesus who satisfies our heart's desires. It is Jesus who quenches our spiritual and existential thirst. It is Jesus who is our identity. No matter how much we have or do not have, he is the treasure that lasts. He is the treasure sent from heaven and who exists there now forever. He, the rich young ruler who became poor for us, What do you need to go through? What do you need to begin to think through to understand what Jesus is now demanding of you? What does it mean to follow this man who gave up his life for you? What level of generosity do you need to get to? The very act of giving is his grace to us for it severs our heart's trust and dependence on our money. And it is the sure and confident act that we love and trust God above all things. And so now you have two weeks to think about this. What is the number? You have this week and this month and this year in your life to to say, Lord, right now, what is the percentage? Let me tell you, it is going to be something that is uncomfortable. It is not going to feel good. It is going to make you feel like you are on a tightrope about ready to fall. 
It is a percentage that will require you to trust him. But I say begin to put your money where you want your heart to be. Friends like the rich young ruler, we have all come up to him this morning. And we have said, what must we do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what will give us eternal purpose and satisfaction? And he says back to us with love in his heart and love on his face, give your life to me. Let's pray. God, I do pray that we just see you now. The Apostle Peter says that though we cannot see you as though we are seeing the trees outside or the people around us, Yet with our hearts we see you. With our hearts we know you. And so for every single person here, open the eyes of their heart. May they see you there, smiling face, a loving soul, a perfect provider. And may they again or for the first time give their hearts to you. You are not just worth it. You are the only thing that will satisfy. God, we must let you come into our lives all the way through. Not just some part of the other part, all the way through, even down to our money. And so that's why we're here today. That's why we're in this series today, that you would have your way with us. You are like an explosion. May we see that. May we know it. May we feel it. And may we begin to live it out. This is going to be hard. Taking these steps into radical generosity is difficult. But may we be reminded that you are there. Our tightrope has the net with you right beneath it. You are holding us up. You are there to catch us. We will be okay. And we know because you love us. And because you are God. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.